as we look at sin, a topic which is very serious, it's a topic which deals with our rebellion against God. And so, um, as I speak, I will get you at various points to turn to different passages, just to have a look and how that they, how they build in and come in together um, to give us a picture, a whole picture of what it means um, when we sin. All right, but before I speak again, let's pray. Gracious Almighty God, as Moses said, Lord, if you do not go with us, we will not go up from here. And Lord, as I speak now, if you do not go with me, I will not dare to speak. For Lord, I could say much up here, I could speak many words, but if you do not work through me, Lord, it will be for nothing. Lord, I pray that you will give us all attentive minds. I pray, O oh Lord, that you would give us all submissive hearts as we come before your word now. Gracious Lord, help me, I pray. For Lord, I cannot, I cannot string even two words together if not for your help. For in you, O oh Lord, in, we do indeed live and move and have our very being. So I pray, O oh God, that you would humble us all here, that we may learn with, with Mary before the feet of Jesus, waiting, listening, with eager expectation to learn from at the foot of Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen. So we're looking at sin, as I'm sure you already know. And sin is a topic which spans indeed the whole of God's word. And as we look at sin, we have to figure out how sin is described in God's word, how sin is put and explained. And as we gain understanding of that, we'll understand how it relates to uh, us and God. For at the very heart of it, sin is opposition to God. Sin is opposition to God. The Westminster Confession of Faith says this, sin is any lack of conformity to or transgression of the law of God. And on one level that is true, on one level it is to do with the law of God, but, it, but it's actually much broader than that. The first way that the Bible describes sin is a crime. The first way the Bible describes sin is a crime. In 1 John 3 verse 4, it says this. It says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Now, God is the creator, the Lord over all things, and he's the divine lawgiver. He commands and he expects people to obey. He expects people to obey the written law you see here in the word of God, but also the law written on the consciences and hearts of all peoples, it says in Romans. So first of all, sin is a crime against God. And if you think about it, it's not just any crime. It's not just something you do against other people, but it's cosmic treason. It's cosmic treason. And as a just judge... God must punish all those who break his law. Cosmic treason. The next way that Bible, the Bible describes sin is as a debt. Is as a debt. And as we pray in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts as we forgive those who have debts against us. 
When Jesus tells the, the parable of the unforgiving servant, what is it that the servant owes the master? It's a debt. It's a debt. It's an insurmountable, unforgivable debt, and yet the master forgives the servant. Before God, our sin is not only a crime, not only cosmic treason against the living God, but it is also a debt. We have an insurmountable debt heaping up, heaping up. It's, if you think about it like a bank account, we have debit, right, weighing up, and yet we have no credit, no righteousness in our account. It is a debt that we cannot pay off in a million lifetimes. We are totally bankrupt with no credit, no righteousness of our own, but only a debt against our account. And that is why it says in Colossians 2.14 that Christ nailed that debt to his cross. So sin is described as a crime, as cosmic treason against God, is described as a debt, and at the same time is described as enmity against God. Come with me to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. In verse 8, it says this, But God shows his love for us in this, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And there it says, while we were still sinners. Go down to verse 10. For if we were, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Notice how it parallels while we were still sinners and while we were enemies of God. In James it says that, that loving the world, whoever loves the world is an enemy of God. It's not as though we only have committed cosmic treason against the judge of all the earth. It's not only that we have a debt that's weighing up against God. But we are enemies of this God. There's a relational aspect to this, to our sin. If you are not in Christ, you are an enemy of God. He is against you. He has set himself against you. He is not for you. Yes, the Lord does show his common grace to all of creation, to all men. But at the same time in the Psalms, it says this, that God hates all evildoers. It's not as simple as this, that God hates the sin but loves the sinner. No, God hates the sin and the sinner. He doesn't send sin to hell, he sends sinners to hell. And yet, even though God hates the sin and the sinner, he still shows love to those whom he hates. Have you ever thought about that? He still shows love to those whom he hates. It isn't necessarily wrong to say everyone, to, to everyone that, that God loves you. But it's important to realize that every second that they do not come to Christ, their sin and they themselves are repulsive to God. Their sin may, means that they are his enemies. Not just their sin, but they themselves are his enemies. It is a tension that we must maintain. Now, I'm not saying that we must say to people, God hates you and has a horrible plan for your life. Usually it's God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. But you must keep that tension there 
But if they do not come to Christ, they are his enemies. And this impacts how you do any evangelism. Other words used in Scripture to describe sin is rebellion. Rebellion. Wrongdoing or unrighteousness. Ungodliness. But all of them at the very heart are against God. Fundamentally, sin is against God. If you love sin, you cannot love God. If you love God, you cannot love sin. You can't have it both ways. You cannot have two masters. Either you will love the one and despise the other, or you will serve the one and neglect the other. You cannot have both. The next thing we see in Scripture about sin is that there are two, I guess, types of sin. All right, sins of omission and sins of commission. All right, but before I explain that, I have to explain the distinction between our original sin and our actual sin. All right, stay with me here. Now, since the fall, this is original sin, since the fall with Adam and Eve, we've inherited a corrupted condition of sinfulness. We've inherited a sin nature. The New Testament says it like this, that we are under sin, or we are in the flesh. We have an inclination and a bias always to sin. We cannot please God, as we saw in in the passage in Romans 8. We cannot submit to the law of God. So this is our original sin. This is our sin nature that we've inherited from Adam. And yet our actual sins come out of that sin nature. Our actual sins come out of our original sin. These are the specific sins that we commit that come out of our sinful nature. Now, we are not sinners, per se, because we sin. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. We sin because we are already sinners by nature. Our original sin, our fallen nature, results in actual sin. Now, as I was saying, these actual sins can either be sins of omission or sins of commission. And it's important to understand the distinction here because often we focus of sin, on sins of commission, right? and these are sins of, of doing what God forbids. Sins of commission are doing what God forbids. Right? He says, thou shalt not lie, and we lie. Right? We, we have deceit in our heart. Right? But there are also sins of omission, And this is failing to do what God requires. So there's failing to do the positive and committing the negative, if you think about it like that. Any lack of conformity to, that's omission, or transgression of, commission, the law of God. So the things we commit is murder, envy, strife, lustful thoughts, impatience, unjust anger, quarreling, pride, gossip, slander. All of these things are sins of commission. And these are things that we can easily see and and hear and measure and in one sense fix in God's grace. But the things we omit are honouring our father and mother, having a joy in Christ, delighting in God, revering God, speaking of Christ, a neglect of prayer. We omit humility. We omit making peace with others. These things, these sins of omission, well, they're hard to see. They're hard to measure. They're hard to fix. The good we do not do and the evil we do do. 
And often as Christians, we think, if we look back on our day, at the end of our day, did I lie? Did I, did I think lustful thoughts about another person? Did I get impatient? And, and, and if, we, if we haven't committed many, if not some of those, we think, oh, okay, I've had a good day. And if you ever take the time to think, did I love God with all my heart, soul, mind and strength? Did I delight in God enough today? Did I neglect prayer and the reading of His Word? I think that we will always find when we come to the end of the day how neglectful we were of these things. And as I've found that as others and myself grow as Christians, often we can, we can work more on sins of commission, right? the things that are, that are obvious to everyone, and yet the things which still lie fundamentally at the heart are sins of omission, failing to delight and trust and love God perfectly. So as you grow as a Christian, your times of confession may be taken up with more with sins of omission rather than the sins of commission. Now we've seen that the nature of sin, the nature of sin firstly is against God as a crime, as a debt, and as, against, as, as enmity. It is in our nature which we then sin out of, and it involves both doing what God forbids and failing to do what He requires of us. And so we have this problem, this problem before the Almighty God of the universe and as sinful beings who rebel against a holy, just, good God, we have a problem. The problem is sin permeates all that we do. The problem is we can't escape our sin. And the worst thing is we have a God who will hold us to account. We have a God who will hold us to account. He must punish sin. So we see next the penalty of sin. We've seen, we've seen the nature of sin and what it looks like in the Bible. What, here we see the penalty of sin. And as we explore this, you will see that it is not a fun or trivial topic. The penalty of sin. I wonder, do I, do you truly recognize how heinous, how evil, how bad our sin is against God? We take sin so very lightly. We presume on God's forgiveness. The Jews did that. The Jews presumed on God's forgiveness. It says this in Romans 2 verses 3 to 5. This is Paul speaking to the Jews. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, he's talking about sinful things, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, do you think that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches and of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Friends, do you presume on God's forgiveness today? Do you presume on His forgiveness? Looking at the penalty of sin, in Ezekiel it says this, The soul who sins shall die. 
the soul who sins shall die. Romans 3, the wages of sin is death. Now, is this just a physical death that it's talking about? Is this just a, a physical death? We, we're, we're alive now and then we just die and that's it, right? Annihilationism where we just die and that's it. Well, there is physical death from the fall. But we see the penalty of sin when we look at Christ's death, when we see at the, the penalty Christ suffered. If he just suffered a physical death and that was it, right? Just a physical death, then it means nothing for our spiritual state before God. Plenty of people have died on behalf of others a physical death. Many people have gone to, to, to physical deaths with more singing and rejoicing than Christ did. In the Garden of Gethsemane, pardon me, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Christ sweated drops of blood because he knew to what he was coming. Plenty of people have died to save others. No, the penalty of sin is God's wrath. It's God's wrath, his pure, infinite judgment poured out upon sin. An Old Testament metaphor used for God's wrath is a cup. It's a cup. And to drink the cup means that you undergo God's wrath. In Psalm 75, it says this, But it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming, foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. God's wrath is pictured as a cup, a cup of wine, which the ungodly will drink to the very dregs. If you think to what Jesus said in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, take this cup from me. Take this cup from me. He did not, in one sense, want to drink it because he knew what it would be to, to in some respects, in, in anticipation to, to undergo the wrath of God. And because of our sin, we should drink that cup to its very dregs. For it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. And Jesus has been appointed as, as judge of all the earth. And if, if you remember back to that, that, that um, parable, in a sense that he tells, where he will separate the, the sheep on his right from, from the goats on his left, one, the sheep will go to everlasting life. The goats will go to everlasting punishment and a fire prepared for the devil and his angels. There is no middle option. There is no second chance. There is no purgatory. You're either on the narrow path or on the wide path. You're either regenerated or you're unregenerate. You're either in Christ or you're outside of Christ. You're either in the spirit or you're in the flesh. You either have your father in heaven or your father is Satan, you either are justified or you're guilty before God. You're either a slave to your sin or you're a slave to God. You're either reconciled to God or alienated. You either have life or death. You are either with God in heaven, enjoying Him for eternity. Or you are either in hell, away from God's redemptive presence, 
alternative. Suffers without any joy or hope. Jesus spoke more often of hell than he did of heaven. He spoke more often of hell than he did of heaven. But but will hell really be that bad? I don't know about you, but I don't often think or meditate enough on hell. And the Puritans, if you've ever read them or uh, heard much about them, there were topics that they meditated on. And, and the primary topic that they meditated upon, among others, was Christ, was heaven, was God and his character, was all the promises of God. But one of them, one of them, that they meditated upon as much as all of those was hell. Was hell. And the shortness of life, the soonness of judgment, the coming of Christ, and one day when there will be the judgment that all men will go under. But will hell really be that bad? And I wanted to take the time now to have a look at that and to make you to, to think about from what we have been saved and from what all those who are outside of Christ will undergo. Or as you realize from what we have been saved, you will come to appreciate the grace of God so much more. When you realize how bad hell is, and justly so, it will make you even more zealous to take others by God's grace with you to heaven. Firstly, hell is bad because of the severity of hell. The severity of hell. Scripture talks about hell in this way. It is a prison that they can never escape from. It is a lake of fire that they will ever be swimming and burning in. It is a bottomless pit. It is a worm that does not die that will ever feed on their flesh. There's unquenchable fire that will ever be devoured. There'll be blackness and darkness without any hope. There'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth with yells and screams. They'll be draining the cup of God's wrath to its dregs. Hell is beyond anything we can possibly imagine. Everyone in hell will find it unbearable. Severity of hell is beyond imagining. Why? Because we have sinned against an infinitely good God. Sometimes people may put this question to you Surely I do not deserve hell? Friends, God gives us less than we deserve every moment that we have on this earth. Every moment that the sinner outside of Christ has on this earth is mercy. And yet every sinner deserves this for hell, this punishment. The second thing we see about hell is its constancy. Not only is it severe, but it's constant. It says in Revelation 14, they shall have no rest day or night, but shall be tormented in Revelation 20, day and night there will be no respite there will be no let up there will be no lessening if you remember the parable of the rich man and Lazarus 
the rich man wanted even to dip his finger in water that he could cool his tongue. But there was no alleviation for his or anyone outside of Christ's torment. It is a constant punishment. And for the eternality of hell, and if the severity and constancy of punishment are are bad enough, if if it wasn't enough, this is the worst thing about hell. Sin deserves not only, in, not only an infinitely severe and, a, and an infinitely constant, in that sense, punishment, but here an infinitely long punishment in duration. Matthew 25 verse 41 says, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And Revelation says, They'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. It never ends. It never stops. Let me read this account from Thomas Brooks. And when I read it, it sent my heart chills. It says this, The sentence which shall be passed upon them is eternal. God himself who damns them is eternal. The prison and chains which hold them are eternal. The worm which gnaws them is eternal. The fire which torments them is eternal. If after so many millions of years as there are drops in the ocean, there might be deliverance out of hell, this would yield a little ease, a little comfort to the damned. But oh, this word eternity, eternity, eternity. This word forever, forever, forever will break the hearts of the damned into 10,000 pieces. Suppose that the whole world were turned into a mountain of sand and that a little bird would come once every thousand years and carry away one grain of sand from that heap. What an infinite number of years would be spent before this great mountain of sand would be fetched away. Just so, if a man should lie in everlasting torment and burning so long a time as this and then have an end to his woes, it would give him some end some hope and some comfort. But when that a mortal bird shall have carried away this great mountain of sand a thousand times over and over, alas, alas, sinful man shall be as far from the end of his anguish and torment as ever he was. He shall be no nearer coming out of hell than he was the very first moment that he entered into hell. If the fire of hell were terminable, then it might be tolerable. But being endless, it must needs be easeless and remediless. Friends, how lightly do we take the judgment of God? This is what Christ endured for us. As the God-man, he could endure the infinitely severe, constant, eternal punishment on the cross. And it will make us value his sacrifice more. He endured this, God's wrath for us. This will show us how infinitely good and holy and just our God is. To transgress him, this is what we deserve. It will make us see his character more. This is how sinful our sin is. We will see when we understand the judgment of God how sinful our sin is. If this is what our sin deserved, how depraved and evil our sin must be against God, even the smallest sin. It will show us the sinfulness of our sin. 
friends, this should make us zealous to see others saved. This should make us zealous to see others saved. It does not matter what they think of us in that sense. So long as we are doing it with gentleness and, and love and respect, even if it costs us friendships, what is more important, a friendship or their eternal state before God? So we have seen the nature of sin and the penalty of sin. But next we see the remedy for sin. We need a remedy for we are enmity with the God and the judge of all the earth. We've committed cosmic treason against him. We are alienated from him. And all we deserve is the miseries and torment of hell. What hope do we have? In and of ourselves, None. We need something, something, someone outside of us. God cannot look the other way. He cannot sweep it under the rug. He must punish sin for he is a just and holy God. We have no hope in and of ourselves. But if, if, if someone would come, but only if someone would come. And when you understand sin and how heinous it is before God and what we deserve as a punishment, you will see Christ and the grace that is in him so much more. But think about it. For a saviour, for a mediator, who would we need? Have you ever thought about that? Who would we need to save us? We couldn't just have any old person. We couldn't have me or Dan or Kamal or someone just to lay down their life and try and hope to to switch places with them, who would we need? What qualities would this person have to possess? The first quality is they would have to be sinless. They would have to be sinless. For if they were sinful, they would have their own death. And their own criminal record before God. And this is what it says in Hebrews. Those priests, right, they, they, they offered sacrifices for the people. But what did they have to do? They had to offer a sacrifice for their own sins first. And so in that way, and many others, they were insufficient and imperfect high priests. So this person, this mediator, would have to be sinless. They could not have sin before God or otherwise there would not be an acceptable sacrifice before God. They would also have to be righteous, not just no negative, but they would have to be righteous. They would have to be perfectly obedient to God and his law. They would have to be, if you think about it, not just sinless and righteous. They would have to be fully or truly man, fully human, to fully represent mankind before God. They would have to be fully man to perform obedience to God's law. They would have to suffer and make intercession for us in our nature. They would have to feel and know our infirmities and our weaknesses. They would have to not only be truly man, they would have to be truly God. To fully represent God to us. They would have to be fully man or truly man and truly God in order to both represent each party. To take 
to take holy God and sinful man in, in each hand and to reconcile them and bring them together. But he would have to be fully God to take God's infinite wrath. He would have to be truly God to give worth, infinite worth and efficacy to his suffering, his obedience and his accession. To conquer all his enemies and to have life in and of himself to give. He would have to find this substitute, this mediator, this saviour, this Christ. Friends, we do have such a high priest. We do have such a mediator before God. One who is sinless. A lamb without blemish or spot. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. He was a holy and righteous one. He was perfectly obedient to God. Fully God. Fully man. And this Christ, this Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, died for us while we were still sinners. Still enemies of God. Friends, there is only one remedy for our sin problem. There's only one remedy to sin all around us in our culture, in those all around us. It is not to be found anywhere else in political programs, social justice, however good that is. The only remedy is found in Christ and the gospel that is found and encapsulated and centered on him. Just like a child's toy, the one with, with all the shapes that are cut out and you have each shape and each block and it, it only fits in the right block. I don't know if you've ever played with, them, with one like that. You cannot fit a circle into the triangle. You cannot fit the circle into the triangle or the square into the triangle or the square into the, into the circle. It doesn't fit. Each, each piece has been purposed to fit that hole. Each Peace has been purposed to fit the right hole. In the same way, no other, no other person would fit. No other person could be the perfect remedy for sin. Have you thought about that? No one else. That's why you can't turn to any way other than Christ. You cannot have it any other way. And the Lord Jesus Christ has been purposed from all eternity for this role. One remedy, one saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because God is just, he must punish sin. But because God is so gracious and loving, he has sent the Lord Jesus Christ. And he has punished Christ for us. There is only one, as it says in Jeremiah 8 verse 22, where in Israel is the balm of Gilead, the, the, the great physician? Sorry, where is the physician to heal the wounds of his people? There's only one balm of Gilead. There's only one great physician who has come not for the righteous, for the unrighteous. He has not come for the, those who have no need of a physician. There's only one great physician who gives his balm, his blood, that is the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Next we see the relationship with sin. We have seen the nature of sin and the penalty of sin and the remedy of sin. And if you want to come to me later, I've written things up about how Christ is our great physician. But I must press on for time. Next we have our relationship with sin. And how we deal with sin depends on whether or not our heart is dead in sin or whether it is alive in Christ. Whether it's dead in sin or dead to sin. Whether you are regenerated by and, and born again by the Spirit of God or whether your heart has not yet been changed. For if you think about it, how do unbelievers, those who are not in Christ, relate to their sin? Well, they do not like their sin coming to the light. They do not want their sin exposed. Turn with me to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. And this gives us a helpful indication of what um, those, outs- those outside of Christ naturally want to do with their sin. John chapter 3 verses 19 and 20. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Can you see there that they do not come to the light lest their works be exposed? They don't want to come to the light. They don't want to come to Christ. They they do not want their, their sins exposed to the piercing influence of God's word. You see this as you tell others the gospel. If you speak about sin in general, often they will agree to that, that no one is perfect. But when you go into the specifics of sin, and specific ways that they have transgressed God, as you keep telling them about the penalty of sin, and the fact that God will hold them accountable on that final day, they get uncomfortable. If they have truly understood you, they will be uncomfortable. And when I've gone round with Dan, and we've had the opportunity in God's kindness to talk to people about this, you see them visibly often get uncomfortable. They don't want to deal with it. They don't want to deal with their sin. They push it down. And another way that the the Bible describes it is that they harden their heart. They harden their heart. Like Pharaoh in the book of Exodus, he hardened his heart again and again so that he would not feel that he would continue to sin and live in that sin. Even though they love sin and indulge in it, they don't want its consequences. They don't want any consequences to their sin. The second thing we see is not only do they harden their heart and push down their sin because they don't want it exposed uh, to God. The second thing is that they try and make up for it. They try and make up for it. This is the state of every other religion known to man. They are man-centered. They are work-centered. They are designed by Satan to distract everyone from realizing how sinful they are. Have you ever thought about that? 
You know, he tells Christians, you're not loved by God. You're, You're too sinful. Why would he want you? But he tells unbelievers, oh, you're not sinful. <laughs> you're okay. You're good. You're fine without God. Oh, oh, you believe God exists. Well, well, he's a God who will accept, you know, your good works and what you do. He, he'll accept you. You know, it doesn't matter if you're not perfect. They will stand before Christ, the judge of all the earth, the holy and righteous one who is pure, undefiled, who loathes sin, and they will expect him to say, no worries, come on in. I, I know I said, who is good but God alone, but, you know, I let it slide. I was just kidding, you know. Of course you can come in. I know my father wants perfect, loving obedience, but he'll let it slide. He said, you must be perfect as my heavenly father is perfect. And he let it slide. Wrong, wrong, wrong. People must be made to realize that all their attempts at righteousness stink in God's sight. He finds it repulsive. And any good work they do will not count for anything. Friends, when you tell others about the gospel of Christ, you must tell them about sin. You must tell them that, you must set up first with the character of God. For if they do not understand that they have a God to whom they will be held accountable, they will not feel the seriousness of their sin. They must be made to realize that their works count for nothing. Count for nothing before God. It does not matter if it makes them uncomfortable. If it makes them uncomfortable, you know that you are saying something that is in accordance with God's word. Every time, every time that the word of God is preached faithfully and that people understand its message truly, there will be, they will be uncomfortable. They will be uncomfortable. The word of God either convicts or it condemns and hardens even more. It either convicts or it hardens even more. It doesn't leave you neutral. The Word of God doesn't leave you neutral. It doesn't. This is what Jesus said when he was telling parables. To you has been given the secret of the, ki- secret of the kingdom of God, but to others its meaning is hidden. Its meaning is hidden. And in the same way, we are either hardened by God's Word, or we are convicted and grown truth there is there is there is no middle ground there were there's no middle ground now again when you preach the gospel when you tell others about christ you must do it with love with with sincerity and with gentleness right you must plead with them like a house on fire if someone had a house on fire right what would you do would you stand there condemning them Or would you call them to come out out of love because they're going to get burnt down? Do it out of love. And if they're uncomfortable with that, so be it. But we must be faithful to God. We must be faithful to the Lord. Not only in what we say, but again in how we do it. 
Well, how do Christians relate to sin? We've just seen how unbelievers and non-Christians relate to sin, but how do Christians relate to sin? Well, unlike unbelievers, Christians do the opposite. So if you know what unbelievers do, and you're doing it, do the opposite. Right? Do the opposite. And we'll look in the seminar at repentance and what that looks like. But Christians do not harden their hearts. They do not push down their sin and, and guilt. They do not run away from Christ. Yes, we do on occasion. But again and again and again, as an ongoing theme, we must continue to repent and come to Christ, mourning over our sin, repenting daily. And we'll look at that in the seminar. For a Christian, we must always seek to repent. But for a Christian, it's a struggle. And this is something I want to highlight. As a Christian, it's a struggle. If it's not a struggle, then you have to consider whether or not you're a Christian. Truly. If you are not struggling at all, then maybe you have to think, and this is what you will tell others, maybe you have to think that you're not a Christian. Because in this life, we have been given this struggle by God. He's not removed sin permanently from us. He's, he's, he's removed in Christ the power of sin. It no longer has authority over us, and it says in Galatians that it was our guardian until Christ came that it had dominion over us. And in one sense, it was our guardian until Christ came with the, with the, with the covenant in Moses and, and all of that. And yet, maybe I'm not speaking the complete truth in this short time of those passages. And yet, at the same time, there is still the presence of sin. We've been freed from the power of sin. But we are now told to struggle against the remaining presence of sin. In Romans 8, which Paul read for us, in Romans 8, it says this. In the second half, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. We are told to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against our soul. We're told to make no provision for the flesh. To make provision means that you, uh, like if you make provision for something here, you, you, you give it uh, time and energy, you, you give it attention, you give it food, water, everything else, right? You nourish it and cherish it. Yet we are told to make no provision for the flesh. No provision. And yet instead we are told to mortify as the old translation puts it, or to put our sin to death. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8, verses 12 to 14. And this is where we'll be mainly here for the last point, the mortification of sin. And this is coming down to how we will put our sin to death. For friends, in Christ, for all those who have repented and put their trust in Christ, we now have an ongoing battle with sin and we are told to put it to death it says if you live according to the flesh you will die but if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body you will live so look, have a look at Romans 8 verses 12 to 14 
Paul said at the beginning of this chapter, and some have said that this chapter is one of the greatest chapters in the Bible. But it covers a whole range of, of, of truths. And we see here that this great truth of how we must live before God now is to mortify or put to death our sin. Let's have a look. Verses 12 to 14. So then, brothers, so then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh. Again, debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Look in verse 13 with me. The audience is you, or the brothers in verse 12. Only believers can mortify sin. If you are not in Christ, if you do not have the Spirit of God, then you cannot put your sin to death. Two, the condition. It says, if you, if you, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live directly and properly. Eternal life comes through the work of Christ. And yet we see here this inseparable connection between mortifying or putting to death sin and eternal life. For all who are saved in Christ will put their sin to death. All who put their sin to death show that they are saved. If you are saved, you will and must put your sin to death. It's the same with fruit. If you are saved, you must bear fruit, good fruit. Not that it saves you, but it is a, a, a necessary thing to have. Not, not earning your salvation. Make sure you understand me here. But it's an inseparable part of, to be, of what it means to be in Christ. You must bear fruit. You must mortify sin. We see next the strength. By the Spirit. If by the Spirit. We see here the strength to mortifying the mortifying our sin it it cannot be done in our own strength that is why if you're not in christ and you do not have the spirit of christ you cannot put your sin to death because you do not have the spirit of christ all your efforts will be done in your own strength mortification from a self-strength carried on by ways of self-invention to the end of self-righteousness is the heart of false religion let me say that again Mortification from a self-strength carried on by ways of self-invention to the end or the goal or the the final result of self-righteousness is the heart of false religion and that is everyone outside of Christ. It will never deliver them from their guilt. Every man-made way of trying to deliver you from your guilt and to try and get rid of your sin will never work never work must be done by the spirit the spirit of christ fourth we see the duty the duty what is our duty to put to death the deeds of the body to death means to take away the the strength the vigor and the power of our sin so that it cannot uh, act or exert any influence of its own and that's what we do when we put something else to death Uh, when we squash a bug or something like that we we take away its life its vigor its power so that it cannot do anything cannot do anything 
In the same way, he wants to do that to our sin, not to trivialize our sin, to talk about it like squashing a bug. But we must squash it. We must not give it any, any chance to exert influence and any power over us. We must put to death the deeds of the body, the outward acts. Again, the actual sins which, which come from our heart. The outward acts which start from our inward sinful heart. So not only must we go, when we know from the rest of the scriptures, only to, to merely reforming our behavior in that sense, in the outward acts, but we must go to the heart, the deeds of the body, i.e. our flesh, our indwelling sin. See the promise. Have a look at the promise. Life. Life. You will live. Well, what is it talking about with life? Eternal life in heaven. Eternal life in heaven because there is that inseparable connection as with the means and the end. And yet at the same time, it's also our spiritual life here on earth. And the scripture teaches us this, that if we walk in the ways of God in obedience, we have peace and joy and comfort. And we'll be singing that song, that hymn, It is well with my soul. He wrote that when his family died at sea. When his family, all of them were taken by the Lord away from him. He said, it is well with my soul. Spiritual life here in Christ. If you put to death the deeds of the body, you would avoid many miseries that others have. Even Christians. Even Christians. Who do not mortify their sin as much as others. As the Puritan, the name has escaped me. Joel, uh, not Joel. John Owen or Thomas Watson, other one. He said this, you must be always killing sin or it will be killing you. There's never a day off. There's never a day off. You're either progressing in the Christian life or you're either backsliding in the Christian life. Well, how does the Spirit work? How does the Spirit work? Well, first, He causes our hearts to abound in the graces and, and, and fruit that are contrary to the works of the flesh. And I was saying this to Kamal as he brought in some fruit today, right? In Galatians 5, it talks about, you know them, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And what do they do? They work in opposition to the works of the flesh, the fruit of our sin. The fruit of the Spirit, in a sense, restrict the fruit of the flesh. What else does he do? He convicts of sin. He softens our heart. He strengthens us. He enables us to see Christ and his cross. He enables Christ to dwell more in our hearts through faith. And all of these seek to help us mortify and put to death our sin. So what are some practical ways that we can rely upon the Spirit? Practical ways that we can seek to put off our sin, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. What are some practical ways? First, you might want to write these down. First, get a clear sense in your mind and conscience of the guilt, the danger, and the evil of your sin. Get a clear sense in your mind and conscience of the guilt, the danger, and the evil of your sin. We've looked at the guilt of sin and what it deserves. What are some dangers? Well, 
The writer in Hebrews says, Beware, lest you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Another danger is that God will discipline you and chasten you for your sin in Hebrews 12. He disciplines those whom he loves. It's not a comfortable thing, I can tell you that. God hides his face from his people. Not that he withdraws completely, but for a time and season you feel like, and sometimes our feelings can be different from what it actually is. But in scripture we see a a, a pattern where God hides his face for a season so that his people will seek him more. In Isaiah 57 verse 15. In Isaiah 57 verse 15 it says this. Sorry, 57 verse 17. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. I struck him. I hid my face and was angry. But he went on backsliding in the way of his, of his own heart. Then it says in verse 18, I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him in his mourning. Creating the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. So the Lord often withdraws his, hides his face, with, with, withdraws his presence in a sense that we may seek him again, that, he might, that we might feel the seriousness of our sin. What is the last danger? Eternal destruction. Eternal destruction. Because it shows that you never have been born again if you remain unrepentant. That is the only sin which will keep you when, we, when you do church discipline. That is the only sin for which you can be, Joel can correct me if I'm wrong, the only sin for which you can be disciplined, excommunicated, is unrepentant sin. Every other sin, Paul says in 2 Corinthians and other places, every other sin, if it's repented of, you can be brought back again into the fellowship out of love. The only sin, right? Grievous sin, unrepentant sin, that is the only sin. All right? But if you never repent, it shows that you were never born again. And this is something that the Puritans particularly picked up on. If you live in sin, you can have no assurance that you're saved. You cannot have assurance that you are saved. In this sense, don't get me wrong here, in this sense. Right? You may have had assurance up until this period, right? And then you start living in sin, right? But you cannot have assurance if you were living in sin for this period that you were saved, all right? What happens? Were you saved before? I do not know. All we know at the time, right, is whether you were living in sin or not. If you never repent, then it shows you were never truly saved to begin with. All right? Now, this necessarily doesn't affect your eternal destiny. All right? You will repent. don't know if I'm being clear enough. But in terms of your comfort, the comfort of your assurance, all right, your subjective assurance, if you were living in sin, Right? And this drives us again to Christ. You cannot have assurance if you are living in your sin that you are a Christian. If you are impenitent, unrepentant. All right, Because if you are, then you would come again to Christ. Then, when you come again to Christ, all right, our, our assurance comes and goes. My assurance has highs and lows. But you know whenever you come back, 
you will be forgiven. It's this tension that the Christian must always be repenting. This Christian must always seek to not live in their sin. And when they are, their assurance is shattered and they must come back. When they come back, they will be forgiven and God will grant them that peace and joy. And the Holy Spirit will again bear witness with their spirit that they are children of God. Again, this is the subjective assurance and peace and comfort. And if I've not explained myself enough, come and talk to me afterwards. All right, I'm not talking about you living in your sin and, 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 and doing good things affects your eternal destiny. But can you see that there's, there's a direct connection between putting off your sin and putting on Christ for the Christian life? There's a direct connection. It says here, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Scripture could not be clearer. Could not be clearer. And the evil of your sin, it grieves the spirit. It shames Christ. It will take away your usefulness for him. And it blasphemes God. So first, get a clear sense of the guilt, danger and evil of your sin. Pushing on. Next, charge your conscience with the guilt of your indwelling sin. Do not just acknowledge guilt objectively. But subjectively, charge your conscience with the guilt of sin. Now, your, your, your aim here is to humble yourself before God. Because those whom God accepts are those in inseparable connection, those who are humble and contrite in spirit. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, those who mourn over their sin. There's, there are no proud... There, there is no one who will come to God on that final day and say, Lord, I did it. I did it. You plead in the deepest part of your heart. Romans 8 verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you plead in the deepest part of your heart that you are truly freed from the condemning power of the law and yet purposely allow sin to be indulged in your heart, you cannot by gospel authority have any proof of spiritual security. What does that say? Yes, we sin but to leave it there, to indulge in it, to not repent gives you no assurance. Take the gospel, take the gospel and bring your lust and your your sin there. How could we sin against Christ and against the Father and against the Spirit? He's been so patient with us. God has been so faithful and loving to us. Consider all God's gracious dealings with you. And that will make you realize the seriousness of your sin. Third, seek a constant longing to be delivered from the power of sin. Never be happy with the state that you're in. Always be seeking to put off sin and put on Christ. Be satisfied, yes, in Christ, but never be satisfied with how much you're doing in terms of putting off your sin. You must always seek to be more pleasing to God by His grace. Fourth, consider sins that you're prone to. Watch extra hard against them, and Dan will talk about this, I'm sure. Five, consider past occasions sin has overtaken you, so that way you will know for the future. Six, rise mightily against the first sign of sin. Extinguish it, even the smallest sin, lest it take root and grow. Or like leaven, fill the whole loaf, as Jesus applied it to various contexts. Seven, fill your mind and meditate with thoughts of your own proneness to sin, of the guilt of sin, And fill your mind with God's greatness and holiness. 
Our aim here is to be humble before God. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. When God, number eight, stirs your heart about the guilt of your sin, be careful you do not speak peace to yourself before God speaks it. This is an interesting one I came across. When God stirs your heart about the guilt of your sin, be careful you do not speak peace to yourself before God speaks it. He said of the leaders of Israel, they say, peace, peace, when there is no peace. If you do not repent, if you do not have shame over your sin, if you do it superficially, if you leave any known sin unconfessed, if our sin does not humble us, do not speak peace to yourself before God speaks it. Come to him. He will forgive you. Then you have every assurance of his word. That you have peace and assurance that you are forgiven in Christ. Nine, set your faith upon Christ for the killing of your sin. All grace comes through Christ. He said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. He is faithful. He sympathizes with our weaknesses. So you'll place your faith and look to Christ. And he works in us by his spirit. And that's number 10. Rely again upon the spirit's power in all of this. Let's seek Christ's grace and the spirit's power to help us to put off the deeds of the flesh, to put off our sin and to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Oh Lord, our sin is so vile. We're so wicked and evil in your sight. Lord, we have seen from your word how evil it is against you, the dangers of it, the penalty of it. As Paul said, who will give us this victory? Who will give us victory over this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Indeed, Christ is the only remedy for our sin. And he works in us by the Spirit. Oh, Father, please help us. Please help us put off the deeds of the flesh, to put off our sin. Oh, Lord, indeed, our assurance will come and go. But, Lord, we know that if we repent, if we put to death the deeds of the body, we will live. If we come to you and seek forgiveness before you, humbling ourselves and we see our sin, humbling ourselves under your mighty hand, it is only then that you will exalt us. Humble yourselves, as it says in 1 Peter, under the mighty hand of God. In the proper time, he will exalt you. Oh, God, may we come to you not as proud, not as unrepentant people, but as those broken and mourning of our sin, that when we are forgiven through Christ, then comes the joy. Joy, inexpressible and full of glory and peace. Oh, abiding peace. Fill our hearts and minds and flood our souls that glorious peace you give us. Oh Lord, it is such a struggle, it's such a struggle as Christians to live lives pleasing to you. 
Oh God, I thank you that you have indeed sent your spirit, that indeed, Lord Jesus Christ, you have indeed sent your spirit into our hearts, by whom we cry, Abba, Father, to you, Heavenly Father. May we, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body, that indeed we might live. We know, oh God, we know, oh God, that there's this inseparable connection between repentance and salvation, not because we earn anything before you, O oh Lord, but because you have told us that it is so inseparably tied up in how we live pleasing life before you. Gracious God, make us humble. Make us those who mourn over our sin. Make us those poor in spirit, that we may always repent before you, and that, O oh Lord, you flood us with assurance that we are your children who come to you. Gracious God, we commit our time, the rest of this conference again to you. Pray, O oh Lord, that you would help each of one of us to love you, to love your grace. All the more, how precious is your grace, how amazing is your grace, how sweet the sound that saved wretches like us. Once lost, we were once blind, but now we see. Oh, amazing grace, oh Lord, that it centers on and it's focused on the Lord Jesus Christ. Pray these things in his glorious name.